0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You may have heard of Kylie Moore Gilbert. She was the Melbourne University academic who went to Iran some years ago to attend a conference and ended up being imprisoned there for 804 days. Why was she arrested at the airport and stopped from boarding her flight home? What had she done while in Iran?
0: It was really just wrong place, wrong time, unlucky. I had interviewed a man in Qom, which is a very conservative religious city south of Tehran, and that's where the university seminar I was attending was being held. This man was a Bahraini, so he wasn't an Iranian citizen at all. Oh, he was a citizen, actually, but he wasn't an Iranian person. And he'd been recommended to me by academic contacts as someone good to speak to about my research on Bahrain. Mm. So I didn't think I was dealing with any taboo subjects in Iran. I wasn't asking about Iranian politics or the Supreme Leader or any of these um, red lines. But this individual, unfortunately, had some link with the Revolutionary Guard Corps. And he didn't appear it to me. He seemed quite moderate, actually. But he sold me out. Mm -hmm. And he just flagged me with them as being a suspicious person or somebody they should investigate. And as a result, they started to look into my background, eventually found that my ex-husband had an Israeli passport. Mm -hmm. And that also compounded the extent to which they considered me suspicious.
1: Why did he sell you out, do you know?
0: I would love to know. I have a few kind of theories about that. They're always lying all the time and they're always playing with you, the interrogators, so you don't actually know when they tell you something, whether to trust it or not. But one of them did tell me that he had been arrested for a separate reason, unrelated to me. And they'd gone through his phone and found messages from me arranging to meet up. And they said, who's this random foreign woman you're meeting up with in Com?" Because there's not many foreigners in Com at all. And that's how they came to be aware of me, I guess. Mm. But he actually helped them to entrap me or tried to the the day before my arrest. So I'm not sure about that. It's also possible that he was an informer for them against his own community of Bahrainis. And he was already working for them. Mm. And I just popped up and he thought they'd be interested in me too. And he was getting financial benefit from that relationship.
1: Dr Kylie Moore Gilbert, on the fateful meeting that led to her arrest, then conviction, and subsequent 10-year jail sentence for espionage. As you'll hear, the charges were ridiculous from the outset, the prosecution, trial, and verdict all bogus. And to top it off, her imprisonment was, for a long time, kept secret from friends, colleagues, indeed from almost everyone in Australia. This is Big Ideas. Paul Barclay with you. Kylie's memoir gives the full story of her ordeal in Iran, her eventual release, and how it was secured. Today we're at the Queenscliff Literary Festival talking about her book, which is titled The Uncaged Sky. So you arrived at Tehran Airport to fly back to Australia in September 2018. Yes. You were pulled out of the customs queue. When when did you first realise that you were in very serious trouble?
0: I think I was in denial at the very beginning, you know, we always think, oh, that'll never happen to me. And, you know, I'd done nothing wrong. So when they'd pulled me aside, and this was a group of maybe four men, I think, um, no uniform all dressed in black. They didn't look official. They didn't look like customs or um, police or, or border security. And um, they said they had a warrant for my arrest. I... I just couldn't really believe it. It didn't really sink in. And I thought, okay, there's been a misunderstanding. We'll clarify things. I'll explain that I've done nothing wrong. I'm innocent. They'll see that, um, you know, I haven't committed any crime and they'll let me catch my flight. Mm. So I think it was several days before the reality actually sunk in that I am in deep trouble here and I probably am not going to go home
1: anytime Mm. soon. Someone had been sniffing around your hotel room at the time. A receptionist had told you about that. But that hadn't given you any inkling that there could be a a problem ahead?
0: It was worrying to me that 24 hours before I was due to fly out of Iran, apparently a group of men had been asking about me at the hotel reception. But I thought, you know, I'm leaving anyway the next day. Whoever these guys are, they weren't, again, official representatives. Otherwise, the the guy at the reception would have told me. They were just unknown men. So I thought, well, as long as I avoid these men for the next 24 hours, I'm going to catch my flight out of Iran and I'll be okay.
1: So you are accused of being a spy. There's various accusations that get thrown around, being a Mossad agent, being an MI6 agent. But the fact of the matter is you don't even speak Farsi. Which is the language spoken in Iran, although I should say that you speak Arabic and Hebrew, but that's not the language spoken uh, predominantly in Iran. It's hard to be a spy when you don't speak the language of the country that you're meant to be spying in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I said to them, to my captors, the interrogators at one, one time look, if I was a spy, you wouldn't have caught me. <laughs> Because I, if I was a spy, like I, I think I rate my intelligence somewhat higher than you know being in such a blundering spy that I would just turn up at the airport with my computer, my phone, all of the information on that to just hand them on a platter, not really resist giving them my passwords at all, hand everything over, be open and honest about everything. You know if I was a spy, I 'd probably try a little bit harder than that to disguise mm. you know, my documents and activities. And um, yeah, I didn't speak the language. I'm not a scholar of Iran. This was my first trip. I was only there for three weeks or so. I mean, for whatever intelligence agency I'm supposedly working for, you'd think they would give me some training and some basic skills and knowledge of that country before sending me over there. So Mm. it really was ludicrous.
1: Mm. So it's the Revolutionary Guards who take you hostage. They're known for taking people hostage. Before you went to Iran, were you aware that there was a risk, however small, that something like this could happen?
0: No, um, I hadn't heard of the cases of any foreigners being taken hostage in Iran. And there have been several before me, most prominently Shiwei Wei Wang, who's a Chinese-American um, Princeton University PhD student who I think a year before me was taken hostage, but I hadn't heard of his case. And, you know, there was nothing on the defect. Travel advice about it at the time, and I'd, it'd never been flagged, you know, by the university or anybody. So, yeah, as I said earlier, you just think this will never happen to me. And I'd been invited to Iran by an Iranian university. So I figured, well, they've invited me. You know, they shouldn't give me any trouble because mm. they've asked me to come.
1: When you were an academic at the time, you've got a PhD. Your area of research actually was Bahrainian exiles in Iran. I know nothing about this. So, what what was it that was interesting to you about that area of research?
0: So I'd never actually written on that subject. It was just an idea I had to expand from just looking at Bahrain, which was the subject of my PhD, to looking at some of the exile communities around the world, not just in Iran. Um, there is quite a sizable community in Iran because of religious links. Yeah. So I was interested in looking at those religious links and to what extent they inform Bahraini's views of Iran or their Shia identity, their their political understanding of Shia Islam.
1: Yeah, well that was a a research idea that you could have done without in retrospect, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I would would say that's pretty correct.
1: (laughs) Without that research topic, this whole ordeal may never never have unfolded.
0: Pretty likely, Mm. yep.
1: So tell us a bit about Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the group that held you hostage for 804 days I know they are they're a terrorist group but tell us a bit about them when they emerged what their agenda is and so on
0: so they were listed as a terror group by Donald Trump I think in 2019 perhaps. And we don't consider them a terror group in Australia. And I think they really should be listed as such. One of the demands under the current uh, nuclear negotiations is that the Americans remove them from the terror list. And that's a major sticking point right now. But I think if you look at their actions in the Middle East, as well as toward their own people at home, and in terms of hostage-taking, like what happened to me, they clearly are a terrorist Mm organisation. They're funding uh, insurgencies in all sorts of parts of the region, from Syria to Yemen to Iraq to Palestine, Lebanon. They have all of these proxies in many of these regional countries nearby to Iran, as well as, you know, um, capturing shipping in in the Persian Gulf and oil tankers and this sort of thing, um, attacking American military bases in Iraq recently. So they do behave like a terror organization. But within Iran, they're also a kind of a state within a state. They're a semi-government actor in a way. They have links with the official government, and um, they're aligned with the hardline conservative Islamist faction within Iranian politics. So they kind of exist in a grey zone between government and non-government Islamist group, essentially.
1: Mm. What's their Um, relationship with the judiciary? I mean, this nightmare is playing out. You're pulled out of the queue. You're taken away for in, in interrogation and imprisoned and so on. But then down the track a bit, you're, without any evidence at all, convicted and sentenced to 10 years, I should say, by a judge who uh, is nicknamed the Hanging Judge. So are the judges and is the judiciary in the pocket of the guards?
0: It's not that clear-cut. When I said a state within a state, it applies to the judiciary as well. So there's actually a parallel Revolutionary Guard-controlled judiciary. There are two court systems in Iran, the revolutionary courts and the regular courts. The revolutionary courts are under the control or influence or follow the stream of thought of the revolutionary guards. And they kind of bypass the normal court processes. Now, I went to, I was tried in a revolutionary court by a revolutionary judge, a man called Abul Qasim Salabati, who's actually personally sanctioned by the US and EU for atrocities, including the hanging of probably hundreds of innocent people. Um, He, I believe, was a revolutionary guard commander who then became a judge, quote unquote, but there wasn't, much justice to be dispensed in his court. And he's notorious. He's often on TV. He's responsible for the killing of journalists, for the kidnapping of foreign nationals, for all sorts of horrendous crimes. And so whilst the judiciary is nominally independent in Iran, it really isn't. And this particular wing of the judiciary, the revolutionary court system, is entirely just a puppet organisation
1: of the Revolutionary Guards. Because there is no evidence against you as a spy, yet despite the fact that there is no evidence, a judge sentenced you to Judah 10 years. It was hilarious.
0: Like, at times during my court, I had to stifle laughter because I wasn't allowed to defend myself. I wasn't allowed to present evidence in my defence or call witnesses or testimony of somebody else, nothing. I wasn't allowed to speak to my lawyer. I wasn't able to meet my lawyer before the court. I wasn't provided with a translator. So I didn't understand what all of the discussion between the judge and the prosecution and everything happening around me actually was. I wasn't able to have consular assistance prior to the court. The embassy wasn't able to visit during the court session. Nothing. It was a closed doors, Mm. super tight security court process, which just made a mockery of justice, really.
1: So you didn't really know, presumably then, what to expect, what, whether you'd be found guilty, although one suspects that you were worried about that. But when a 10 year sentence gets announced, tell us about that, what that feels like, looking down the barrel of 10 years in some Iranian hellhole.
0: I knew I would be found guilty because by the time I had been, or I had attended both my court sessions, which were about two months apart. I'd been there for almost a year, so I knew how the place worked. I knew that this was a kangaroo court, a sham trial, and I expected fully to be given a prison sentence. Ten years, though, was the actual maximum sentence for the charges that I had been given, cooperation in espionage, I think they called them. And I wasn't expecting the maximum sentence because yeah, there was no evidence. I mean, I thought, oh, maybe they'll give me a couple of years, maybe five if I'm unlucky. And I think they really wanted to send a message because I was behaving very badly. I had been caught trying to smuggle notes out in my first court session. The judge was very angry about that. Then I went up on the roof of the interrogation block and refused to come down and caused all sorts of mayhem directly prior to my final court session. So I think they were just punishing me by giving me the full 10 years. Uh, I think my lawyer was quite surprised at that as well because a lot of other foreigners have received, you know, five to seven years maybe, but not ten. But, yeah, that that was the result. And how do you respond to that? Well, I responded through black comedy and humour, really, because so many prisoners will, will say the same. That's really one of the only ways you can grapple emotionally with such a devastating piece of news and myself and my cellmates actually had a party after I came back having received the 10-year sentence we thought well let's celebrate this and um, you know we stayed up half the night eating and drinking and um, singing and dancing and trying to make light of it because if we actually let the reality of that sink in it would be just so profoundly depressing that wouldn't be able to get over it really.
1: We'll we'll talk a little bit later about the relationships that you formed with other inmates in prison, with women in prison who you became very close to and uh, to this day that relationship means uh, a tremendous amount to you. You endured like literally hundreds of hours of interrogation whilst being detained. Your interrogators attempted to get you uh, to entice your then husband, the Israeli a dual national that you mentioned earlier, to come to Iran. They uh, attempted to pressure you to spout pro-Iranian propaganda and have that filmed to denounce the West. They tried to turn you into a spy. How did you hold firm against all of that? And, and, And how did you, importantly, not lose all hope?
0: I think the angrier I became at my treatment, the more enraged I became... I'm a very stubborn person, so the more angry and and stubborn I became, the less and less likely it was that I would agree to do anything that they wanted me to do. When they treated me nicely, I was much more compliant than when they treated me badly. And they are very stupid. I mean, they're not the most um, <laughs> professional of... They're not real intelligence operatives. They're more like thugs or mafia or, you know, they're not in their positions because of any skill or talent or understanding of espionage. They're there because of religious affiliations and ideology and who they know. And, you know, this organization's very cliquey and incestuous. So... If they were smart, they would have figured out that being nice to me and treating me humanely would have achieved more results than punishing me, treating me like an animal, like a number, dehumanising me. Uh, But it became a cycle where the more I would resist, the more they would punish me, which then I resisted more and then they punished me more to the point that I just didn't give a damn. I didn't care anymore. They could, they've take, they'd taken everything from me yeah. that I had held dear and that I cared about. So, you know, when you've got nothing to lose, you're a pretty dangerous person. You, you know, you can do anything. Yeah. And the more that cycle continued, the more I just said, no, you know, and I, you can let me leave me here to rot, yeah. but I will not debase myself by doing what you want and being a tool in whatever you know, ideological game they had, going with the West or with Australia or you know wherever. So mm. I think it was my rage and my anger and my stubbornness that led to me just not agreeing to any of these schemes.
1: Uh, should remind you at this point, for about the first year of Kylie's detention, none of us back home had any knowledge. Those who did, the small number of people who did, Uh, some members of Kylie's family were were sworn to secrecy. This is important. This is something that Kylie thinks was a mistaken approach by the government, and we will come to talk to that because it's an important part of the story. But just going back to what you endure in prison, it's mostly a kind of form of psychological torture that you endure. Tell us a bit about that. I suppose the solitary confinement in particular really does your head in.
0: Yes, and it's deliberate entirely. They know exactly what they're doing. Everybody's experience in solitary is similar. I know countless others who've been through it and been in it for longer than I was. It breaks you down psychologically. It is designed to break you for purposes of interrogation so that if you have done something wrong or if you are a spy or whatever, you will open up and tell everything you know because you can't take it any longer luckily for me didn't have anything to tell that was of yeah. much use to them and they kept me in there for so long because they kept saying you're lying to us you won't confess to your crimes um, you're, you're sticking to your story but actually it wasn't a story at all it was the truth mm. uh, luckily for me i never made a false confession and in part that was due to my friends in prison and, and their advice and you know solidarity because as i recount in the book From about two or three weeks of solitary, which was the very first cell I was put into upon being thrown in prison, some girls in another cell reached out to me and we established a kind of an illicit note-passing network And um, later on, a month or two later, we were able to talk through an air conditioning vent every couple of days um, in the middle of the night, just briefly, but when we were aware that the guards were watching TV or or might not have been paying attention to us. And that information that these girls gave me in English, because, you know, I didn't speak Farsi, I didn't have any way of, um, you know, even understanding the prison guards Mm. or even, you know, asking for help or, or assistance or anything, medical care. Those girls really helped me through it because they said, "No, under no circumstances should you confess. And whilst I was in solitary, knowing that I had that friendship on the other side of the wall or across the hall, and I wasn't going through it alone despite being alone, that they understood me, that tiny snippet of human contact Mm. that I had every couple of days or every few days just allowed me to cling on to my sanity and... And hold on and and survive through what was a horrendous experience. Big Ideas on Radio National. Broadcast, podcast, and on the ABC Listen app.
1: I'm talking to Kylie Moore Gilbert about her harrowing experience of being imprisoned in Iran for 804 days. So you lived mostly in a two metre by two metre jail cell. Can you paint us a picture of that jail cell and the terrible conditions?
0: This was the first cell that I was in. It was the smallest. I was in a variety of others that were a little bit bigger, but basically this was a windowless box. It was just uh, long enough for me to lie down on the floor without my feet and my head touching each wall. There were no furnishings or No bedding, no bed linen, no pillows, nothing. It was a bare floor with a kind of a machine-made Persian rug uh, carpet that was filthy, full of hairs and bits of food and God knows what stains. And I had to sleep on the floor with a kind of a scratchy, itchy military blanket to cover me. And that was it. There was nothing in the room, just four walls, led lights in the ceiling that were on 24 hours a day and a telephone in the wall for calling the guards Mm. that was all so there were days where i was locked in that little box for 23 hours each day and um was let out for half an hour in the morning half an hour in the evening to go to have a hori which is like a what they call sort of taking air i guess an, an outdoor little strip of balcony where we could walk backwards and forwards for half an hour.
1: That was Evan Prison, is that right?
0: In Evan Prison,
1: yes. And you moved from that prison to uh, an all-female prison in the desert, which has one of the reputations of being one of the most horrible all-female prisons in the world. Tell us about that prison and your incarceration there.
0: I'm glad you asked about Karchak because, um, yeah, I'd like to talk about that more and write about it more I mean in the book I I have several chapters about this prison but I could have written an entire book in and of itself just about Karchak it was so fascinating I think it used to be a a chicken slaughterhouse and they converted it into a prison it was notable for having salt water instead of fresh water come out of the taps because it was in a desert that was near a number of salt lakes and um, the more water coming out of the reservoir was actually salty. So we used to shower in salt water and a lot of the poorer prisoners actually didn't have enough money to buy bottled water to drink. And that was a really big problem. Um, The prison would provide them water from time to time, obviously. They didn't Mm. die or, or, you know, but they were quite dehydrated and we would, you know, share water. But the water situation there was a real problem and it was a desert. There was nothing alive there, nothing growing whatsoever, baking heat, It was overcrowded, full of regular criminals. So there were very, very few political prisoners like myself. I was the only foreigner, really, in the whole place. And I was in solitary confinement before being moved there. So I literally went from being alone in a cell to being in a room with 100 women, Mm. sleeping with 100 women in probably a room about the size of this one, maybe. uh, Maybe a tiny bit smaller, kind of triple bunk beds. Right. And um, some of these women were pretty dangerous, pretty scary. There were a few murderers, armed robbers, a lot of people there for drug-related offences, drug addicts who were still um, addicted in the prison and they were quite terrifying because they were so unpredictable and, you know, you'd be worried you'd wake up with a knife to your throat in the middle of the night or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, there were some good people there too and I made friends there and I just... You know, it, it's a horrendous place with terrible conditions and the sanitary situation there was just shocking. Yeah. But I just relished being in the company of others, being able to have human contact yeah. and forge human relationships rather than being alone as I was in Evin. So It was
1: so important in terms of you maintaining a degree of mental strength, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Human contact is crucial to our survival
1: as human beings.
0: We are collective group animals at the end of the day, we need to have others around us. And being deprived of human support for, you know, we can deal with it for a few weeks probably, but for months and months at a time, it's just soul destroying.
1: Did you regard yourself as someone with great mental reserves, particularly resilient type of person before this ordeal?
0: I regarded myself as a strong and independent person. Resilience-wise, I guess I hadn't really been tested in my life to any great degree prior to that, no. But I knew that I was strong and
1: I was a fighter. Yeah, because there are, in the midst of these terrible circumstances, many efforts on your part as a disempowered person to take back power and take back control. For example, you go on multiple hunger strikes which can seriously harm your long-term health, I should add. What did they achieve for you? I mean, there were a sense that in an environment where you don't have much power, this is a form of power that you can exert. Tell us about that and, what, and how that benefited you.
0: Yeah, so hunger strikes were the very first form of resistance I undertook. And pretty early on, I'd say maybe after four or five months of my incarceration, I, I did my first hunger strike. And as you say, it's one of the only forms of power you can exert over yourself when everything has been taken away from you. You, know, you don't even have control of your toothbrush. My toothbrush, my, my underwear, everything was kept outside the cell and I needed the guard's permission to, to access it. So it was literally just be alone in a cell. And whether or not I ate the food they gave me was the only thing I could control. Mm. And everybody knows what a hunger strike is. It's, it's a classic political prisoner scheme that, you know, throughout history, we have many examples of prisoners undertaking them for a variety of reasons. So it was an obvious thing that I thought of at that point to express my outrage at the way I was being treated and to make demands of my captors and try and win concessions from them. Mm. And at times they they did work and I did win concessions. And at other times, they, they didn't work and, and largely failed but it was a tactic I employed probably seven times. I think Mm. throughout my incarceration, I went on hunger strikes.
1: Now, rather perversely, while you're incarcerated, one of your captors uh, seems rather infatuated with you. This is the head of legal affairs in the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps Intelligence Division. He, it would appear, wants to marry you, which must have been incredibly strange for you. Uh, You you say that basically he was a, a, a psychopath but a very uh, well-dressed and quite intelligent psychopath. Tell us about that strange relationship, um, which, which you joke, uh, you know, may have had an element of Stockholm Syndrome about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... I'm not a psychologist, but I feel like all psychopaths are intelligent. Like, there's a fine line between genius and psychopathy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he was very, very smart and very manipulative, like a, a master at game-playing. And having many levels of games being played and manipulated at once. Yeah, he was somewhat infatuated with me and developed a sort of um, emotional connection to me. And I was in solitary at the time. I enjoyed talking to him when he started treating me well, because he treated me very badly for a long stretch of time too. I did enjoy having philosophical conversations with him practising my Farsi, talking, you know, making him understand and maybe opening his eyes to a certain extent to how we see the world in the West and then learning about how, in Iran, conservative groups like the Revolutionary Guards view countries like Australia, like America, Mm. and trying to find some common ground, which there was some, you know. So I I had some interesting um, discussions with him. But, yes, it became toxic. Well, it was always toxic, but... I came to understand that he was actively taking steps to thwart a diplomatic deal being reached for my release because he didn't want me to go. And when I rejected him, his advances, that's the point that he sent me to a Karchak prison, Mm. um, this prison in the desert, as a punishment. Mm. But actually, I took great pleasure in... um, letting them know after I arrived there that I was much happier there than than Evin. so thanks very much for the punishment. Um, yeah. You know, it backfired. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it was a... I think this is a thread that runs throughout the book. He was present on the night of my arrest, was one of the main people in charge of my case and one of the main interlocutors of the Australian government in the negotiations over my release as well. Mm. So he's a sort of a central figure throughout.
1: You know, they clearly must have known that you weren't a spy. So did it quickly become a transaction in the mind of your captors? Did they think, well, this person's not a, but now that we've we've got her incarceration, we'll uh, we'll manipulate this to try and get something in return?
0: Yeah, definitely. They view these kinds of situations as a transaction, as you, you are a bargaining chip in a broader geopolitical, geostrategic game or negotiation. That doesn't say, that doesn't mean that from the beginning when they arrest you, they know you're completely innocent. I think everybody, the cases of most people I know in Iran who've been arrested, there has been some grounds for, usually not actual grounds, but some reason why um, the Revolutionary Guards have suspected them. Like in my case, that particular Bahraini guy selling me out and, and flagging me as suspicious with them prior to my arrest. And then they think, okay, well, it's a win-win situation. We pick the person up, arrest them, throw them in prison. Either they're guilty and we shake them down and get as much info out of them as we can, and that's a win for us, or they're innocent, and then we just use them as a bargaining chip and get some concession out of their government in exchange for them. And either way, they win, and they haven't really paid a price for that behavior thus far. In fact, they've been incentivized. So I don't think they really care if you're innocent or guilty because you're of use to them either
1: way. And so you feel and are aware that you're just a pawn in a bigger game, and that must be intensely frustrating. Frustrating is not even really the word. It must just, you, you must be paralysed almost by that sense.
0: It is extremely frustrating to know that you have very little agency or control over your own fate, and that your life is in the hands of bureaucrats in DFAT and Islamists in the Iranian regime, it's a very scary worldview yep. and, you know, you, obviously as an autonomous individual living your life in Australia or wherever, you are used to making decisions about your own life, whether they be good or bad ones, and then, you know, um, the implications of those decisions are yours to own. Mm. But in prison when you're at the mercy of such a regime and you know the only ticket out of there is if your government comes and saves you Mm. that's very disempowering and it's very frustrating because obviously you want to take steps that in some way could influence your own fate
1: and the government has made a judgment the australian government that the best way they believe to secure your release is to be quiet about the fact that you're incarcerated at all for the first year that was the approach and to work behind the scenes to secure your release. This is a kind of a form of, of quiet diplomacy. You are critical of that approach. It made you feel as if nobody knew about or cared about or had forgotten about you in prison and totally understand that you would have felt that way. I and mean, then presumably your parents who are knowing about this, they can't tell anybody and you know that. So you're critical of that approach. What, what, what do you think the government should have done instead of take that approach?
0: I think I I don't want to criticise the government too much or DFAT because I am very, very grateful to them for securing my release. And at the end of the day, they pulled off a remarkable, complicated, trilateral diplomatic negotiation to secure my freedom. And for that, I'm just immensely grateful. They came through in the end. But I think there was a lot of faffing around and perhaps confusion, perhaps over adherence to diplomatic norms, this kind of thing at the beginning, which meant that I certainly had a sense that not a lot was happening for at least the first few months, if not first year or so. It was only when pressure was exerted, I believe, through my case
1: being made public,
0: Mm. perhaps some of my letters being published that I managed to smuggle out, I don't know, that I got the sense that more was actually happening.
1: Because online online petitions started to form once people knew about your predicament, they became vocal about it. All all, all over the world, actually.
0: Yeah, and I'm so grateful to everybody for that because it's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, I I had been asking my family to go public from the first few months of my arrest, but the government was so adamant that this was against my interest. Mm -hmm. And I found that frustrating because... I want to be able to decide what's in my interests and what's not. You know, they didn't even know where I was. They knew very little about the conditions I was being held in. I'm living through that. I should be able to make that judgment call. Once I understood the parameters, and I knew and I heard the cases of many others, other foreigners and dual nationals held hostage in Iran who had public campaigns, none of them had suffered in prison. None of them had seen their conditions deteriorate. To the contrary, You know, when my situation was made public, my access to medical care and my my living conditions within prison improved as a consequence. Mm. So I didn't see any evidence that a public campaign would be detrimental to me in prison. In fact, the opposite was true. So I think that the government does need to reassess its approach to these situations. It really is a case-by-case thing. I can imagine that in some circumstances, an arbitrarily detained person, it would be in their interest to keep it quiet. Mm. But with a country like Iran, I don't think there is much of an argument to be made for that. And all of the evidence of other cases of precedent bears out the opposite, that it can improve that person's conditions in prison and pressure the Iranian government to negotiate over their release.
1: Were you pressuring your own family to ignore the government advice and speak out anyway? And were you angry at them for not doing so?
0: At certain times I was,
1: yes. And that caused some stress and tension between you, presumably?
0: I mean, I was very cognizant that my family don't have any awareness or understanding of Iran or the Middle East. They're just simple people from Bathurst, New South Wales. They had been thrown into this horrible, horrific situation where they were being pressured and and lent on by the government to stay quiet and being told that I could be hurt or damaged in prison if they didn't. Now, what parent is going to say, okay, well, you know, if I speak out, that could harm my daughter, but I'm going to do so anyway. I mean, that's Mm. some call or some decision to make. So I don't blame them for that. They were doing what they thought was best for me. I was frustrated with them at times and, you know, but then I was also very conscious of the fact that I put them through so much. And so when I was calling home infrequently, I I did try not to upset them too much as Mm. well.
1: I'm at the Queenscliff Literary Festival speaking to Kylie Moore Gilbert about her memoir, The Uncaged Sky, which tells her story of surviving imprisonment, interrogation and psychological torture in Iran. Look, I'm sure that if I was in your position, I would have wanted my government to do anything to secure my release from prison. But I ask you this question nonetheless, what are your feelings about the fact that your release was tied to the release of three Iranian terrorists who were convicted on attempted bombing charges on the Israeli embassy in, in Bangkok. You get freedom, but the exchanges, so do they.
0: I definitely have mixed feelings about that. I mean, that's... These people don't deserve to be free. If they undertook some sort of atrocity in the future, I would feel linked to that and in some strange way responsible. And that's terrifying. And, you know, I really hope that such a scenario never eventuates. In a way, you're between a rock and a hard place in these hostage situations. The government has to give them something. They're not going to let me go for nothing. And Hostage-taking has paid dividends for Iran for more than 40 years since the US hostage crisis of 1979. They've been doing this. They've always got something in return. So you've got to give them something. I think the Australian government did do a good deal in that these three terrorists weren't a threat to Australia. One of them had blown off his own legs, so he was an incompetent terrorist (laughs) who was of no danger to anyone, you know, in a wheelchair. Uh, I mean, the other two guys... To be honest, I understand Australia has received assurances they would not be allowed to leave Iranian territory after their transfer back, but, I mean, we can't trust anything the Iranians tell us, so that's very possibly a lie. But, yeah, it it, it does trouble me a lot that that was the price of my freedom and heaven forbid that these men would go on to do any further terror acts.
1: So so earlier this year, uh, two British nationals, including uh, Nazan and Ratcliffe, were released from prison in Iran. The UK paid Iran hundreds of millions of pounds for the release of two hostages. Others remain in custody. I mean, for you as someone who has experienced what they have experienced, it must be great to see them freed, but you have very, very deep reservations about how that release was secured, don't you?
0: Oh, it was a terrible deal. I mean, The British negotiated from what should have been a position of strength. They had what Iran wanted, which was literally millions of pounds worth of frozen Iranian military debt from the Shah period, so more than 40 years old. And the Iranians just had a few, you know, citizens that they didn't give a damn about. Mm. From Iran's perspective, getting 400 million pounds in exchange for two people, both of whom they consider to be their own citizens, because both individuals were Iranian nationals born in Iran, who held British passports, that's, you know, an incredible bargain. Yeah. And the Brits, you know, the, the Iranians are master negotiators. They have a long history of, you know, culture, of haggling, of, you know, um, negotiating over prices and, and this kind of thing. And I think they played their hand really strongly. The Brits waited until Nazanin Zaghari had served her sentence in full and under Iranian law anyway should have been released because she had a five-year sentence. She'd been there for five years. So it took them her entire prison sentence before actually making that deal anyway. Anousha Ashuri, the second man released also, had been there for five years too. And they left two of their citizens behind, including the only British-born, British-raised national, Murad Tahbaz. So, I mean, I think that's shameful. £400 million should have been enough to bring all British citizens in Iran home. Mm. And they actually reneged on a, a separate deal they'd made for Murad Tahbaz. He was supposed to be released from Evin prison into permanent house arrest. And they released him for 48 hours and then... Popped him straight back in prison again. Mm. So they can't be trusted to keep their word on any deal.
1: So, and a bad deal because they didn't extract as much as they should have for the exchange of money. But more to the point, of course, this brings up that dilemma about paying for hostage releases generally. If you pay someone to release someone a hostage from prison, then of course you are incentivising hostage taking, aren't you?
0: Most definitely. And The problem is also that it's not just paying ransom to hostages because the argument that's often made is it's not really ransom because it's actually Iran's money that's been frozen due to sanctions. Um, It's a debt that is owed to Iran. That is true, but we have these sanctions for a reason. And the consequences of paying 400 million pounds, for example, to an organisation that is listed as a terror group are huge people will die because of that money. This group is not going to spend that money on humanitarian assistance to the Iranian people. Right now in Iran today, people are protesting in the streets in Khuzestan province because of the cost of living. The cost of bread has gone up 300%. People don't have water, they don't have food. They can't put fuel in their cars, so they're protesting. And this very organisation is firing live fire on those innocent demonstrators. The bullets, the guns used to fire on them, maybe that money has gone to purchasing those. These people are torturing thousands of innocent Iranians in prison. That money is funding that. They're sending money to terror groups in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria. That money is funding that. So this is irresponsible in my mind. We should draw red lines under any transfer of funds or unfreezing of sanctions that is going to directly financially incentivize hostage-taking. Whilst prisoner swaps and prisoner exchanges are also problematic, I think the harm they do more broadly is far less, because, sure, you've got one guy who's been released who probably shouldn't be released, or or two or three that, you know, justice hasn't been served if they haven't served their sentence in full, but that's still one or two guys. Mm. Think about how many innocent Iranians and people in the region could die as a result of, you know, such a huge sum of cash being transferred to a terror
1: organisation. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the special bond that you formed with some of the women that you're in prison with, and uh, two of them you dedicate the book to. I did want to talk to you about that and about you've been freed, so many women remain in prison. Talk to me about your feelings about those that remain and the importance for you in your ongoing campaigning around this.
0: I'm heartbroken that my friends, my sisters, not just the two I dedicated the book to, but countless others that I met in various prisons in Iran, but they're still there. These are innocent women who are Iran's best and brightest. You know, Niloufar Bayoni, one of the, the ladies I dedicate the book to, she is Columbia University educated, worked for five years in Geneva for the UN Environment Programme, is fluent in three or four languages. This is somebody that should be a leader in her country. She travelled back to Iran and started to work in wildlife conservation only nine months prior to her arrest in order to contribute back to her country. They were working to save critically endangered big cats, Asiatic cheetah and Persian leopard, in Iran. She was really making a difference to her country. That country is crying out for people like her, and yet they throw them in prison with zero evidence. In her case, and the case of Sipideh Kashani, the the second lady I dedicate the book to, they're both colleagues, even the Iranian government itself came out and said that they're innocent. Mm. So you have this kind of factional rivalry between the government and the Revolutionary Guards. The Revolutionary Guards arrested them. The government actually said that they're innocent. Mm. Yet they're still in prison more than four years later. Niloufar is only two weeks older than me. These are the best years of her life. She turned 35 last week, actually, and she's been in prison since she was 31 years old. She should be getting married, having kids, starting a family, building her career, and instead her life is on hold, and her whole family is paralyzed by this. The ripple effects of the imprisonment of one person are huge. Sipide as well, her husband is also in prison. He's also part of the same conservation NGO. Both husband and wife are thrown in prison. All of their families and extended families are impacted by that. And, you know, they often said to me, actually, in prison, we care more about our cheetahs and leopards than we do about ourselves. What's their fate? Who's looking after them? They had a breeding program where they were trying to save these two critically endangered species from extinction, and they were worried nobody was looking after them. Mm. And that this, this species would actually be wiped out as a result of their imprisonment. Mm. So the, the ramifications of such activities are actually much bigger than you might ordinarily think. And mm. it just breaks my heart that such atrocities are being committed against such wonderful, incredible people who really are the best and brightest of, of Iran and, and should be celebrated, not imprisoned.
1: Mm. Absolutely. And your affection toward the people in Iran shines through despite the ordeal that the Revolutionary Guards in, in Iran forced upon you. Do you think the, um, the uh, Magnitsky laws will make a difference? These are, these are the laws to allow governments to take action against uh, citizens overseas who've breached human rights. Um, you are a big supporter of those laws, I know. Do you think they will make a difference?
0: Well, Australia is yet to sanction anybody from Iran under Magnitsky legislation, and it is quite new here. I, I months ago, submitted a list of names to Maurice Payne's office and requested that they consider sanctioning some of these individuals for taking part in not just my hostage taking, but that of others, including the two other Australians, the um, two backpackers who were arrested. We've done a lot of triangulation. I'm part of an international group centred on the UK, but also in the US, who are comparing notes and trying to figure out the identities of a lot of these officials in the judiciary, in the Revolutionary Guards, Iranian politicians, etc., who are part of the hostage-taking business model. And we are submitting this evidence to the UK parliament, Canadian, US, EU parliament and now Australia, asking them to please sanction some of these guys as really a first step to disincentivize hostage-taking. Iran has only ramped this up in the past two weeks. They have arrested two French tourists and one Swedish tourist, all of them entirely, um, you know, like me, foreign, not connected to Iran, because of a war crimes trial of an Iranian official in Sweden and um, you know, stumbling blocks they've reached with the nuclear negotiations, mm. just to put pressure on those European countries. Mm. This is happening more and more frequently, and we do actually need to take steps to disincentivize it. And the Magnitsky sanctions, I'm not sure whether or not they will have a huge impact, practically speaking, but I think the symbolic message they send in yeah. outing these people, in exposing their identities and their names, preventing them from funneling money to Western countries and, you know, a lot of their ill-gotten gains and corrupt wealth is parked here in Australia or in Europe or elsewhere. I think that will have an impact, even if it doesn't directly punish them for their actions.
1: Yeah. Look, the personal toll on this uh, for you, Carly, has been, you know, 804 days locked up in jail. Uh, Your husband became distant from you while you were in prison. You ended up divorcing him. I don't really want to spend much time talking about that. Suffice to say, he was having an affair with your friend, colleague and PhD supervisor back in Australia. I'll just let that lie, um, because it's clear that you are forging a new life. You are no longer an academic. Uh, Your life's been turned upside down, though. How how, how has it changed you? How are you a different person after this ordeal?
0: It's a really good question. I don't, and I say this in the epilogue of the book, I don't think fundamentally at my core I have changed very much. I'm still the same Kylie always was. But there are certain, I guess, behavioural changes or attitude changes certainly that I've gone through. It's a process and a little of that has faded over time, so I don't know how much will remain with me in 10 years, say. But um, I'm certainly a little bit more suspicious of others and others' intentions and um, I guess very mindful of my physical situation, where I'm located, where CCTV cameras might be, who might be watching me. Maybe I'm a little bit paranoid in that you know, instance, actually, although I have been hacked so by the IRGC in the past now, since so coming back, so maybe it's warranted, I don't know. But I guess some of those behavioural uh, changes have happened, but at my core, I don't think I've changed.
1: And just finally, what was it like that moment of freedom, in particular, that moment of hopping on the plane, coming back home?
0: I was pretty numb with shock at the beginning. I didn't trust it until I left Iranian airspace. While we were flying on that plane, I just held my breath. I felt sort of clenched inside, clenched up. I couldn't trust that I was actually going to be free until I got news that we'd passed out of Iranian airspace. I was that highly strung. They'd even threatened me in the past, or, oh, you know, even if you take off on your plane, we can turn that around and force it to land. And, you know, they'd said all sorts of things to me. So I was very tense and a little bit in shock at the events of that day of my release. When we passed out of Iranian airspace, I just remember looking out the window and I could see this beautiful expanse of Persian Gulf below me, the water and, and the clouds and the sky. And I did just sort of let myself breathe out and tell myself it's over.
1: Did you order a whisky or a glass of champagne at that point?
0: We may have had some champagne on the flight to celebrate, yes.
1: Kylie, it's been great talking to you. Uh, All the best with the future that lay ahead, a whole new uh, future. Please put your hands together for Kylie Moore-Gilbert. Thank you. (laughs) I've been talking to Kylie Moore-Gilbert about her memoir, The Uncaged Sky. Publication details can be found at the Big Ideas homepage. Thanks to the Queenscliff Literary Festival, where that conversation was recorded. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Until next time, bye for now.